Hey, everybody. This is Adam from Madison's Story Slam apologizing deeply for being such a slacker and not getting these podcasts out. Uh, I am finally working on the back catalog of podcasts that we have from our Story Slam events. Um, today's episode is from last year. Uh, the theme is What Could Go Wrong? It's really great, so I hope you enjoy it. And uh, just so you know, our next Story Slam is Saturday, April 15th at the Wilmar Center. Our theme is Here Goes Nothing. Uh, so come out to that and enjoy it. First up on this episode, we have storyteller Jessica Regan. Enjoy. So about a year ago, I was brutally, brutally friend-dumped, right? Yeah, so it's hard. It's hard to be friend-dumped, and it's hard to be friend-dumped by a person who um, you become so attached to. We started off as strangers who had an incredible conversation, and we instantly decided we were going to be best friends. It was one of those um, folks who was so incredibly different from me, but someone that I had such a compatible way of communicating that we knew that we had a lot to learn from each other. And we were really excited about that. Um, And then suddenly it was really hard when we were both not as excited about that. So after the course of a year of really getting to know each other and having gone on incredible adventures and having stayed up till 4 a.m. to talk about life and all of these different types of things, um, I was told suddenly that maybe we shouldn't really keep in touch or hang out anymore. So... I found my place, myself in a place where I was really needing to regain a sense of myself and who I was and what made me happy. So I made a list. I went to the notes function on my phone, and I literally made a list of things that made me happy. And so things on that list um, included spoken word and blue raspberry slushies and um, things like fire escapes. I find tremendous beauty in fire escapes. <laughs> And solitary trees standing alone in the middle of the field. Those are the types of things that made it onto my list because I didn't really care that those weren't normal things to like or that made normal people happy, but those are the things that really sat with me in a way that could help me, again, kind of regain that sense of who I was and um, what I needed in order to grieve that loss of a friendship. The last thing on my list was one that really lingered with me that idea of a solitary tree standing in the middle of the field. And I remembered back to a photo that a photographer friend had taken of an engagement session of this couple that was um, underneath this big, beautiful tree. And I thought the caption said that it was taken near Oregon, Wisconsin. Um, So I decided to do a Google search to try to find this tree. And I typed in all sorts of really great keywords like big tree, solitary field, Oregon. Um, and didn't really find what I was looking for. There weren't any really great immediate hits that was like, this is what you're looking for. Instead, I found a website dedicated to a tree, a big solitary oak tree, a bur oak tree near Platteville, Wisconsin. And I'm like, this might do. It wasn't the one that I had in mind, but it was a beaut. You all, it was incredible. Just from the pictures I saw online, it looked just like the one from the end of Shawshank Redemption. You know what I'm talking about? Like this big, gorgeous tree. And I thought, that right there is my happy place. Like, I need to go find this tree. 
So I'd read a little bit about it on the website. The, um, there was a photographer, a photojournalist, who decided that he also had a big fascination with trees, such as this one, um, and had dedicated a year to taking a photo per day of this tree throughout the seasons, throughout all of the different um, times and spaces, and had put that into a book, had put that into a website. And um, so I did a little bit more digging, and I found the address of this tree. Yeah, this tree has its own address. And I decided to go see it. So first I went online and I bought the guy's book because I felt like I've got to support this person in doing the work that he's doing. Um, and I read all the details about what happens next of watch your email for an invoice of how to pay by check. And so I was like, okay, okay, okay. Um, but I had to hit the road. I had to get on the road and find this tree and be there with it and let that be the thing that kind of brought me back to my um, sense of who I was. And with it being near Platteville, it was about an hour's drive. And I drove and I drove and I drove and I found it. And I saw it from the side of the road. And clearly, it was on private property. And I'm very much of a rule follower. So I stayed at the side of the road. And I just gazed over the landscape and really appreciated this tree. It was a beautiful tree. Took some pictures. It was great. Posted to Facebook. Got a lot of likes. It was exactly what I needed in that moment. Um, and then I went back home and checked my email, trying to find this invoice that I could print off and mail in with a check in order to really finish purchasing this book and seeing what that was all about. And I didn't see it. So I emailed the author, and I said that, hey, I thought I was supposed to receive an email with more information. Can you help me understand what my next steps are? Um, and he responded back with a beautiful long email saying, first, check your junk mail. And I did, and there it was. Um, but also, I see that you're from Madison. Let me tell you about like my experience of trying to get into the galleries of Madison. And I'm so glad that you love this tree. And let me know if you need directions or want to meet there sometime. Because I hadn't told him like I had already taken care of that. Like I went and I found the tree on my own from the address that I dug from the depths of the internet. Um, but I thought, how cool is this? All of a sudden, I have a VIP invitation from this author photojournalist to go check out this tree and have like this behind-the-scenes tour of this tree like on this private property. And of course, I'm going to take advantage of that invitation. And so I emailed him back, and I said, great, I've got the invoice. I can put the check in the mail tomorrow. We're good to go. But since you offered, I think it would be really great to meet at the tree. And so we made arrangements to meet that evening. My husband was off of work, and so I thought it'd be fun to do this little road trip back to the tree that I had just been to the day before to check it out again in person on this private property with the person that had really committed a year to getting to know the tree. And I called my husband to tell him the good news, right, that we're going to go check out this tree. And he was in a rotten mood. He had just gotten turned down from a job that he was really excited about, and he needed time to process that and just sit with that and be with that. And I told him, like, this is my quest to my happiness. I don't want you along for that. I'm sorry. Like, I understand that you're having a bad day, and I want you to be able to just be with that bad day. Um, and I'm still going. So I tried finding someone else to go to check out this tree with because... Um, it was something that I wanted to share the love and joy and happiness that this tree could provide with more than just myself. And when I went around to friends and coworkers throughout the day saying, like, hey, what are you doing after work? Um, <laughs> with them obviously thinking, like, happy hour, dinner. Like, these are normal things that people might do after work. I shared that there's this tree that I really want to go check out in Platteville, Wisconsin. Are you in or not? Um, and all of them were not. They were not in. 
for a variety of reasons. But um, I decided that no big deal. I'm going to go by myself. And so this is kind of where that what could go wrong piece comes into play because I had a lot of people subtly tell me, you know, there's things that could go wrong, right? Um, but then there was my friend Heather, who was not so subtle, and she said, you know you're going to get murdered, right? <laughs> and so that's now very much a phrase that we use in our everyday lives because I'm the type to go on these sorts of adventures. And it didn't even occur to me at the moment that this wasn't a normal request. Like, this isn't something that someone would normally say to someone of, like, hey, you want to go check out this tree in Platteville after work? Um, but I went, and I went alone, and on the way it occurred to me, like, yeah, this is one of those scenarios where you could get murdered, having met a stranger in the middle of nowhere, literally nowhere. Um, and I thought I'd give it my best shot and see what happened. And so I went, and I met the photographer, and he was delightful. He was one of those people that within the first few minutes you know he's harmless, and he's fantastic, and he's amazing. We had the greatest conversation about the tree that we saw in front of us. He did his photographer thing. He did a 360 around the tree, and he was taking all sorts of pictures as um, the sun was starting to go down, and it was the most beautiful light of the day. And he was asking me about my life story and my husband's life story. And he was like, why isn't he here? I thought that he was going to tag along. And I explained what was going on with him, and he was so sympathetic. And it was just one of those conversations that really helped you um, connect with, you know, on a really human level with another person. And we both talked about this, how amazing is it that something, this, this force of nature, could bring people together in the most unexpected ways. Um, he had done some tree sampling and learned that this tree had literally been around since Wisconsin became a state. So um, this tree had been just in this place and growing, and it had such a story and such a history to go along with it. And just imagine all of these things that this tree has seen. It was a really great conversation. Again, not the type of thing that you might normally expect to do on a Tuesday after work, but it was exactly what I had needed, um, and it was exactly what I think he appreciated to find another person who wanted to buy his book and also like <laughs> really genuinely loved the work that he was trying to do of like elevate the beauty of this tree. And so as I was... Um, you know, starting to kind of pack up my things. We had done the exchange in person, like check and book, instead of trying to make that work through the mail. So it all happened like really perfectly that we were able to meet that evening. As I stood out and kind of looking over this tree in the field as I was about to leave, I realized that this tree had stood and survived for 168 years. And wow, life is long. And life gives you so many new strangers to meet and adventures to be had, and I even learned to love the not knowing of where each new encounter may lead. And I also learned that life is short, and so I've started saying yes to as many of those opportunities as possible, whether it's surrounding a, a tree or a fire escape or whatever, a chance to connect with a person in a really different way around something that I love, whether or not it's something that a normal person would love. Um, and so that's what I've been able to take from that tree. Thank you. Thank you very much. Please put your hands together for Lisa Stouffer. Thank you. Uh, so I wanted to tell you about something that I did that was so rebellious 
and so sinister and exciting. And I thought it wouldn't really be anything, but it ended up changing the fabric of who I am as a person today. What I did is I watched a YouTube video. I know, right? So um, I was raised a Mormon, and Mormons are allowed to watch YouTube, just so you know. Uh, just not everything. There are certain things you're not allowed to watch. Um, and there were certain things I questioned about the church, but you're taught never to question. And you're taught to stay away from that kind of history that talks about, um, you know, my, our prophet. Not really mine anymore, but... Um, <laughs> uh, you're not supposed to, they call it anti-Mormon literature. And, and what it is, is it's history about the person who started the Mormon church 200 years ago. It's a really old religion, I know. So it all started on St. Patrick's Day, 2013. That was the beginning of a massive transformation for me. Very exciting. But at the time, it was heartbreaking. It was terrifying. Um, I grew up Mormon. I went to Brigham Young University. I took all the religion classes, and I loved being Mormon. It makes you feel special and different. And no, you don't drink alcohol. And no, you don't drink coffee. And no, you don't watch rated R movies. And no, you pretty much don't do anything that everyone in here is probably doing right now. So, um, but, it, but it makes you feel cool because you're different. And that, that, that kind of stays with you for a while. Um, when I was at BYU, you know, I was with all my special friends, and we all lived this special life. And then I moved to New York City, and there were less special people there. And it's kind of hard to make friends with people who aren't as special as you are, because they want to drink alcohol and talk about things they do at nighttime with people of the opposite sex. And you don't do those things or even know how that works, really, <laughs> at all. I was 26 years old. I'd never done anything. And, and I didn't feel that I hadn't done anything. I just chose not to. But there was something inside of me that was kind of like pulsing back and forth. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute, what are you doing? And it always had been there, and I'd always just kind of squashed it down. Like, no, 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 you're happy. This is a good life. We're happy. We're happy. We're happy. <laughs> We're happy. We're happy. <laughs> and, um, and that night, St. Patrick's Day... I was doing what you would expect a normal 26-year-old girl to be doing. I was sitting in the basement of my church playing Pictionary. <sighs> but don't worry, because I had a plan. Things were going to be different. I was going to go to a bar. I know. <laughs> I, I went online, and I looked up on the Internet, and there's a bar in Milwaukee. And so I was, like, going to go to that bar because I, I, I knew the address. I printed out the directions to get there. I knew they were having a karaoke night, and I knew how to sing. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'll fit in. This is great. So I got, I, you know, halfway through the Pictionary party, they were about to do some catchphrase, and I was like, oh, I got to go. I'm going to go hang out with my parents. <laughs> and I left, and I, and I drove down to Milwaukee, and I couldn't find the bar. I, I don't know, it was overwhelming because Milwaukee's this big city and there were people everywhere. But luckily, they have more than one bar in Milwaukee. <laughs> so I pulled into a parking lot and I, and I was getting ready to get out of my car and I was watching and it was awesome because I grew up 
uh, in, you know, just a little town in Delafield. And then I went to BYU for college, which is nothing like any university you've ever been to, I'm sure. Because they don't really, like St. Patrick's Day, like I would buy grape juice and drink that. And that was exciting. So um, I'm sitting there and I'm like watching these people and they're all so happy and running around and kind of stumbling. I know now they were probably wasted. But at the time, I was like, these people are super happy. They're just like having the best life of their life right now. And I was like, this is great. But I noticed something. And I noticed that everyone was kind of like in groups, like of threes or five, but everyone had like a group. And I, and I remember watching these three girls, and they were wearing short skirts. I thought that was fun. And like tank tops, even though it was freezing out. I think people think different things about those people, but I think they were awesome. Really high heels, and they were stumbling all over each other. And one of them like fell into the street, and the other two girls were laughing at her. And, and these boys kind of like were driving by, and were just like, what are you doing? And the glass on the windshield of my car felt 10 inches thick, because I didn't have a group of people with me. I, and I didn't know how would I talk to these people because my whole life was about my religion and, 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 and not drinking and, and not doing all of the things that they were doing. And I sat there and I realized that I, I, I don't know. So I got my keys and I put them in the ignition and I drove home. And I was so defeated because I was so determined to make something happen. And I thought about it as I was driving home. I was like, I, I don't know who I am. I don't know who I am or what I believe. I've just believed it since I was a child. And I got to do something about this. Now, in the Mormon church, like I said, you are not supposed to engage in any sort of history lessons about the church that were not approved by the church. They have lots of websites you can go to, mormon.org slash history of Joseph Smith and how he found gold plates in his backyard and an angel told him not to show them to anybody. Yeah. And, and I just, I realized that I just wanted to know. You know, I, I knew the church was true. I knew, I knew Joseph Smith was a prophet, and I knew that he was not a bad person. So I was just going to watch one of these videos. Nothing was going to happen. I was just going to watch one. And I wanted to watch one before. I've tried, and I clicked on one once when I was in college, and I got freaked out because there was a weird, scary voice, and it was like, the prophet did this. And I was like, ah! <laughs> no, I'm a good person. <laughs> but I, I, it was a Sunday morning... And I was like, okay, I'm just, I'm going to do this. And, and the prophets always say, if you watch a, a Mormon, anti-Mormon video, it will ruin your life forever. And there is a little bit of truth to that. Because the life that I had before was completely shattered after I watched that video. And it was replaced with this new life. Life with people and with excitement and with joy, because when I clicked on that video, it was only 22 minutes long, but then I clicked the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and I started to learn about the history of my church. And some people know the history and choose to be Mormon, and that's great. But for me, when I learned these facts, and I thought, gee, I went to BYU, and we never mentioned this or this or this, I began to question for myself. 
something that I'd never done before and something that helped me become the person that I am today. I mean, granted, I've got a long ways to go. I walked in here and I saw all of you and I was like, oh my gosh, that's so many people and I don't know any of them and I'm all by myself. But I was like, that's okay because you did that before and you left, but this time you're going to stay. And I have stayed out here in the world with all of you enjoying St. Patrick's Day ever since. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Our next storyteller sometimes throws meat at you, and it's kind of scary, so please put your hands together for Marty the Meat Man Sosnowski. Thanks, Adam. I'm bringing my chair because I don't know if it's going to be there when I get back. You know, Adam... We were talking at our table, and we were thinking, maybe if you just saved a chair and raffled that off, you might come up with a little more money. But I'm going to need the chair tonight. So, you're a judge, right? Good, because I'm really trying to win one of these, so here you go. Nobody, I'm just, I'm just saying, I'm having trouble trying to win one of these, so I thought I'd try something a little different. <laughs> So, it's a little warm out tonight, so I brought some props to get into the mood. Because this story takes place in the winter. So, here we are. This, I'm eight years old. It's about 1965. You guys figure out how old I am. I'm pretty old. So, here we go. Now, I was born and raised in Michigan. My parents, my grandfather owned a piece of land up in northern Michigan. Way up north. Up by the UP. So... We just happened to be up there ice fishing one year. Now, at my grandpa's land, there's this hill that, I'm not kidding any of you, this hill is a quarter mile tall and steep as a ski jump. It's unbelievable. So it's always been, when we were little, it was always like, man, someday somebody should sled down that hill. Well, this was way back in the forest, so you couldn't get back in there in the wintertime most of the time. So... One winter, we're up there ice fishing. It's early in the season. The snow isn't too bad, so we're going to stay at my grandfather's property after we're done fishing. So we get there, and we're waiting for my grandfather to get there because we need his Jeep to get back into the, to the property because you can't get back in. And so we're sitting there looking at this hill, and my father... Now, this was my father's idea. He's, we got a toboggan on the top of the car. And we're sitting there looking at that hill, and he's going, you know what? You two boys should take that toboggan and make history and come down that hill. And Chris Woodcock, now here's my disclaimer, I never change names to protect the innocent. If you were there, you were there, your name's going to be out there. So my friend Chris Woodcock, he is pretty brave. He's a pretty brave soul. He's like all over this. All right, so up to the top of the hill we go. And this is a traditional toboggan. Wooden, you know, red little seat, little strings to hang on to. And I'm not kidding you, this hill is unbelievable. You can't even get up it with a car in the summertime. You have to get a running start. So up the hill we go. Now the first trip down, we get going, put some safety equipment on. I wish I would have had this much safety equipment. It would have helped. 
I'm telling you, a Takata airbag I would have taken at this time. No problem. I wouldn't have had any questions with that. So the first trip down, I don't remember much because I'm telling you what, I'm sitting there like this. just it, We're going at like 60 miles an hour, and that's really without exaggeration. And I'm thinking, we got down. Whoa, that's, I really didn't even look. I was going to jump off, and my friend told me not to. So down we get. So my dad goes, hey, I got a camera. One more time. Okay. So back up. See, it talked me into it. Back up. The, now this is where I didn't see that common part comes in on the second trip down. So here we are at the top of the hill. My dad's down at the bottom. He's got his camera now. And like I said, remind, now this is my dad's idea. Okay, so we're up there. Down we start going. We just start getting up to speed. This is the honest to God truth. We just start getting up to speed. I look over into the woods. We're in a totally forested area. What's coming through the woods? A fucking herd of elk. And I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not talking to fucking elk. I look over there, and there are 15 elk, and they must be getting chased by a wolf or something. They're, they're coming. They're coming, and we're going, and there's no fucking stopping. And I'm, and I'm pointing, and I see my dad. He just gets a pit, and all of a sudden, he just drops the camera. Because, honest to God, he can see that this is a collision course that's probably going to happen. So it's time for some split-second decision-making. Now, at eight years old, my decision-making isn't very good right now. At eight years old, this didn't go over so good. I, I, I'm looking, and I'm going, oh, and I'm not kidding you. This is no Marty Stowe for a Wild America moment. These things are coming, and they're busting trees, and they're going to come across that road. They don't even realize that we're coming down this hill, and you can see the smoke coming out of their nose, and they're coming. So I told my friend, I said, I'm going to jump, and he's like, don't. And off I went. And he, and he kept going. And that was probably a mistake. But in, And to tell you the truth, I can't honestly say that I saw what happened next because I'm tumbling. Just like the skiers when they crashed on the hill. Down this friggin' hill, I'm going off into the snowbank. But I did catch a glimpse of elk going across the road. And I, as I came to, I didn't know what happened. I get up. And there's Chris standing down at the bottom going like, yeah, man! And I remind you, my father thought of this idea. That's my didn't see this coming moment. Uh, next storyteller, her name is Mel. She's told the story a couple times. Please put your hands together for Mel Hammond. This story is about puppies. Has anyone ever owned a dog? I haven't. But I thought that because I love watching puppy videos on YouTube that I was an expert in dog sitting. Um, That was not the case. That was not a good qualification. So this is a story about a time dog sitting went wrong. And I should have known because I'm really bad at, in general, taking care of other living things. Just ask my houseplants. Oh, wait, you can't. They're dead. (laughs) So I was living in Kansas. I was going to grad school. And I lived in the perfect grad school house. Perfect school for, I mean, perfect house for dog sitting. We had hardwood floors that were super scratched up. We had three couches that had come from, I guess, the dump or the side of the road. (laughs) 
Um, we had a backyard, great for dogs. It was full of like rotting old grills that had been there when we moved in. And I think what could have been the remains of a dog house that someone had like taken a sledgehammer to or something. We had a fire pit full of cans of bush light. Um, when I moved in, there were three bottles of sriracha in the fridge that were like two years expired. And we had like one of those toilets that just swirls everything around. It doesn't really like flush. So it was perfect for dog sitting because like who cares about this house? Like the dog can do whatever it wants. So I should have known like after my first try at dog sitting that I should stop dog sitting or at least like look up an article on the internet about how to take care of a dog. So the first time I was dog sitting for um, this little fluffy white puppy named Elsie and she was very stupid. Um, And I had my friend Sam helping me. She was my roommate and my best friend. And we were watching this dog together. Neither of us had um, a lot of dog sitting experience. Um, And so the trouble with Elsie was that whenever we opened the door, she would escape. And she would go out and eat things that she should not be eating. And luckily, she um, she was very motivated by food. So we would work together. Sam would wiggle a piece of ham outside the door, and I would be there ready to catch her when she came back in. Um, So one time after she had escaped for like a little longer than we were comfortable with, we were getting a little worried, we finally lured her back in, and she promptly vomited onto our living room floor a pile of spit and grass and a penny. And so we got paid like $100 to watch her, and I felt really, really bad about that because we did not do a good job at all. And we were very upfront with our friend Kylie when she asked if we could dog sit her little corgi named Stella. We told her this story about Elsie the dog and how she had somehow eaten a penny and a pile of grass and vomited on our floor. So she knew the risks when she entrusted her beloved puppy to us. A few things went wrong. First of all, Sam left town. And I was like, I'm on my own? Like, I don't know what to do. Who's going to wave the ham? (laughs) So Sam left town. We had one other roommate, but we didn't see her very much. So she wasn't going to be helping. Um, So I'm alone for the weekend with this little corgi, who is adorable, but I don't know what to do with her. Like a few, like I'm not completely clueless. I know the main things. You gotta feed the dog. Okay, I got that. Like I knew how much food to give her. You gotta walk the dog. That's, that's great. I am great at walking. I can put the leash on the dog and we can go outside. I even will remember to bring the poop bags and like I can clean up the dog's poop. That's fine, I'm not grossed out by that. One of the problems is, like, the dog always eats things everywhere that she's not supposed to eat. So, like, she'll chew on, like, old McDonald's cups and, like, gross pieces of trash, dead animals, whatever. So I'm like, okay, that's, that's a little gross. Like, she would throw up sometimes. And I knew that was bad, but, like, what am I going to do? Like, she's a dog. She eats stuff. So I could, I could walk her. Like, this was okay. We would get back to the house, and I'm like... What do you want to do now? I was in grad school, so I had stuff to do. I had papers to write, papers to grade. So I'd be like, okay, Stella, I'm going to sit on this couch. 
you go play in the corner and like we can reconvene in a few hours. <laughs> but Stella did not want to sit quietly in the corner. She wanted to play. So she would like come like lick my feet or jump on my lap when I was trying to work. I'm like, Stella, this is due on Monday. Like I really need to work on it. So I tried like making her really tired. She loved to play this game where I would hold a rope and she would grab onto it with her mouth and I would pull her all around the house because we had slippery wood floors and she loved that. But no matter how many times I pulled her around, she would never get tired. So I'm like, Stella, like, what do we need to do? I need to work on this paper. So um, I sat down and I just laid down the law. I ignored her. I'm like, Stella, just treat me as a piece of furniture right now because I'm not going to play with you. And I put my foot down. So she was like barking at my feet for a while, like trying to jump up, but I didn't react. So eventually she went and like did her own thing behind the couch. And I was like, ah, this is perfect. But then I'm, I'm working on my paper. It's going pretty well. And things are quiet. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, this is nice. She wore herself out. I can work in peace. Having a dog is like easy. I got this. And then I realized things are a little too quiet. So I'm suspicious. So I get up from the couch and I walk down the hallway towards the bedrooms. I'm thinking, oh no, what if she got into my bedroom? There are things in there that she could chew up that I would be sad about losing. So. I walk towards the bedrooms, and I see her butt poking out of the bathroom door. The bathroom's on the way to the bedrooms. And I'm like, Stella, what are you doing in the bathroom? I go in, and from what I can tell, she has chewed up and torn apart some like red tissue paper. And I'm like, did someone leave a birthday present sitting around? Like, they're going to be really mad when whoever it is finds that her birthday present, like, completely destroyed. I'm like, why is there so much red tissue paper? That's weird. And why is it in the bathroom? And then I look behind Stella. She's knocked over the trash can. It's not red tissue paper. It is used tampons. <laughs> and Stella has eaten a, probably about four of them. <laughs> and torn the rest to shreds and scattered them all over the bathroom. It's like she's playing in like a McDonald's ball pit full of tampon shreds. I mentioned earlier that our toilet kind of just swirled stuff around, so that, in case you're wondering, that's why the used tampons were in the trash can. So I'm like, oh my God, Stella. Gross. <laughs> so I kick her out of the bathroom and I shut the door and with my bare hands, I scoop the used tampon shreds back into the trash can. This is the blood of me and my best friend and my other roommate. And I'm like, here we go. <laughs> so I put it all back in and I wash my hands. And I tell myself I am never getting a dog. My friend Kylie, Stella's owner, comes to pick her up the next morning, and I want to tell her, like, maybe it's important, like, maybe dog owners should know, like, what their dogs have been eating. I don't know. 
but I can't bring myself to tell her. Like, it's so gross, and she's going to be horrified. So I don't tell her. I just send Stella home, and then I get a text from Kylie later, and she's like, what did Stella eat? Did she consume an entire newspaper? And I'm like, no. It was tampons. And she said, please tell me they were clean tampons. And I'm like, Kylie, why the hell would a dog eat clean tampons? Thank you. Man, if I had a quarter for every time my dog ate my used tampons, I would be loaded. Um, Our next storyteller actually suggested this theme to me. He pulled me aside at our last story slam and said, hey, I've got a great story if the theme is what went wrong. And so I changed it a little bit to what could go wrong. Is that the theme? Right? Yeah. yeah, what could go wrong? I don't even remember. This is like my 12th beer. It's not. I, it's not. Uh, but so that means I'm expecting a really good story. So please put your hands together for Bradley Glassell. No pressure. No pressure at all. <laughs> all right, good evening. So I grew up in Milwaukee. And uh, when I graduated from high school, I decided to go to Milwaukee Area Technical College. And while I was working there, I worked at a place called Lost Dutchman's Mine. So it was like a bar and grill type place. And um, I don't know if any of you are from Milwaukee, familiar with Milwaukee? A little bit? Okay, great. Ever remember the Sydney High Building by the Bradley Center? It was an old building back in that area. And it was built in late 1800s, and it had seen better times. Basically, during the 60s, was kind of like an artist, counterculture-type gathering place, this weird conglomeration of stores and apartments and things like that. And so in the basement of the Sydney High Building was Lost Dutchman Mine, this bar and grill. And um, as a matter of fact, this building was known to be kind of a fire trap. And they think for a number of years he was trying to burn, the owner was trying to burn it down to get the money from it. So... And as a matter of fact, my dad at the time was the assistant fire chief for the Milwaukee Fire Department. So knew a little bit about the history and things like that. So I go to work at the Lost Dutchman Mine. Now, this bar and grill was in the basement of this old building, and they had built it like a mine. They had taken and made it like a mine shaft and things like that down in the basement. And kind of imagine this bar and grill, and it had like a counters across here, and then a grill in the back, and this was open to a dining room, kind of like this. I could look at you folks right like this in the dining room there. And so went to work there, and this was kind of, I think, one of the first places I knew of that made really big hamburgers. You could get a quarter-pound, half-pound, three-quarter-pound burger there, and it was pretty popular. And so I was working one Friday during lunch, Really busy. The place was packed. So I'm back here working on my grill back here. And uh, got it full of burgers. Big burgers. They're all frying away on there on this flame, flame grill. All of a sudden I hear, whoosh. The grease filters had started on fire. 
So up above the grill, there's fire burning up in there. So I go back, I take the burgers off the grill, and I'm thinking, okay, I got this. Here's a fire extinguisher. Take the fire sting, pull the cord, nothing. Well, good thing there's a second fire extinguisher, right? (laughs) Take it, boop, nothing. Okay, now, so this is this big old building with all these weird shops and that in there that are kind of known, maybe it's going to get burned down sometime. (laughs) So you don't have any working fire extinguishers. And I go running around to a couple of the other shops around, you got a fire extinguisher? No, I don't have a fire extinguisher. Nobody has a fire extinguisher. So I come back down, and I look, and this fire is starting to go pretty good up in the shaft in there. And so I called the other guy working with me who was working the bar around. I said, hey, got a problem here. I said, we got a fire up. And he looks, and he looks up there, and he goes, oh, yeah, wow. He goes, uh, what do you want to drink? <laughs> I said, excuse me? He says, what do you want to drink? We're going to have to get out of here. He said, let's go. I said, well, well, vodka gimlet, I guess. So he takes, and he starts loading up bottles, and he loads up a bucket and all this, and some glasses and that, and he's going to get out. And so I come back around, and I look, and now the fire is lapping up onto the ceiling. Not a good time. So I'm sitting there, and I'm, again, just like this is open-air uh, dining room, and I'm sitting there thinking, well, i got to come up with this speech. You know, i got to come up with this thing. i got to evacuate the, the restaurant. You know, so I'm sitting there thinking for a couple seconds, and I'm, I'm thinking, okay, everybody, could I have your attention? And could, you know, you in an orderly fashion leave and all that? And I think about this for a couple minutes, and I look behind me, and now the flames are getting out, and there's smoke on the ceiling and all this. And I said, okay. So, okay, I'm going to do it. So I walk up to the front. I go, excuse me, excuse me. Everybody turns like this and goes, <gasps> and they just like start getting up and pushing chairs and everybody's rushing around. Everybody's pushing around on top of each other. It's like total mayhem. Everybody exits out, out of the restaurant. So again, my, my bartender comes around. He goes, okay, I got the drinks and everything. So we... <laughs> We run out, and we go up in the parking lot, and he starts setting up the bar and everything and starts making drinks and that, and the fire department starts coming, and there's huge smoke coming out and everything like that. And so basically this was down in a basement in something built like a shaft. They couldn't even fight this fire. They, it was so hot it ended up melting the jukebox into the ground. That's how I was. Well... So I'm sitting there in the parking lot, and again, this is a building where it's kind of known that maybe some arson was going to take place, you know? <laughs> and I'm sitting there, and we're having a drink like you would normally do at a fire. <laughs> and the arson inspector comes up to me, and she says, hi, I'm the arson squad, Look at me, what the hell went on here? You know, we're very suspicious of this, and... I tell him the whole story, the flames lapping out, uh, you know, telling the people to leave and all this. And he goes, well, what's your name? I said, uh, Brad Glassell. Do you happen to know a Howard Glassell, the assistant fire chief of the Milwaukee Fire Department? <laughs> I said, yeah, that's my dad. <laughs> so if you know anything about firefighters, now this became an infamous story in the fire department. <laughs> exactly. So... That's what went wrong. <laughs> Thank you.
If you've been here uh, before, uh, or at this specific story slam I'm about to talk about, uh, <laughs> I told the story once about how uh, my friend, I, I was like 9 or 10 years old, maybe 11, it doesn't matter. Uh, my next door neighbor and I decided we were going to play with uh, my new Zippo lighter that my older friend bought me from Walmart. And uh, my friend, my, my next-door neighbor, uh, was like, oh, I've got a great idea. I'm going to fill up a mason jar with gasoline, and we're going to light it on fire. <laughs> uh, thankfully, uh, my next-door neighbor's dad was really cool. He's still my mechanic to this day and still gives me a discount, so it's awesome. But I almost blew up his house. Uh, our next storyteller is... Honestly, probably the funniest storyteller I have ever heard. Uh, a couple years ago, he told a story about a shootout in Joplin, Missouri. I forget what story he told last month. <laughs> but please put your hands together for Sammy Gowney. Hey, everybody. So uh, when I was 10 years old, I fell in love with Istanbul, Turkey. It was just this city I read in the Atlas back when I was in grade school, little Sammy Jr., getting really excited uh, about this amazing city that I read about, and I just got obsessed. And it was my dream to go to Istanbul when I got older. You know, I like would listen to the, the Giants song, Istanbul to Constantinople, on repeat over and over, which is like the great eternal joke every time I mention Istanbul. Everyone's like, oh, did you mean Constantinople? It's original. I've never heard it before. You're so funny. Um, <laughs> But I fell in love with this city, and I was just so interested in this, like, East meets West dichotomy, and, like, I, I'm half Arabic, and I liked how it was, like, interesting, like, almost like an Arab city, but also Mediterranean, so interesting. So I knew when I got to college and went to UW-Madison, I had to go to Istanbul at some point. So I looked up the uh, study abroad options, and I found there was a great option at Boazic University, and I was like, oh, I have to go. So without a ton of planning, I decided to go to Turkey uh, and live there for a whole year in Istanbul. And it's the best decision I've ever made. It's my favorite city in the world. But I went to Turkey um, in a situation where a lot of things could have gone wrong. You know, uh, Turkey can be kind of volatile sometimes. Um, they have a history with a terrorist group in their southern area. Um, and I didn't speak Turkish at all. Um, and, you know, erroneously I thought, you know, I know some Arabic, and it's probably similar to Arabic. It's not at all. Um, so before I went, I learned a couple words, like bread, ekmek. Uh, that's it. Uh, so I knew how to say ekmek, which is great. Uh, the biggest issue if you go to a country where you don't really know a lot of the language is if you look like a local. And I look hella Turkish. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I get on the bus and I'd be riding the bus for my first little weeks there and I'm just driving around and people are like, oh, and I'm like, ekmek. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's good. Um, but eventually, you know, I lived there, and I met a bunch of amazing people, and I started to learn the language, and things were going really smoothly. And living there for the whole year was a fantastic decision. I had a lot of really great adventures while I was there that could have gone wrong, um, and were right around the cusp of going wrong, but didn't. You know, like, I took a night bus for myself to Bulgaria and got detained at a border by guards with Uzis. I uh, went to Serbia and partied with weird mafioso people in this area named Silicon Valley, where Silicon Alley, where the most... Uh, popular accessories 
these were Kalishnikovs and pec implants. It was very interesting. And I went to Jordan in Petra and got stuck in a flash flood in a chasm. But everything went well. Everything was actually fine with all those stories. Nothing went wrong. So it's my last two weeks in Turkey. And I'm really just winding it down... Three of my really, really good friends, Lotus and Adrian, Alex, who are all here tonight, came to visit me in Turkey. We had a great time. We ate like a shit ton of baklava and drank like way more tea and had a great time. And on their last day, I decided I want to take them to one of my favorite spots in the whole city. So in, anyone here been to Istanbul before at all? Okay, so okay, so one of my favorite parts of Istanbul is Taksim Square. So Taksim Square is kind of like the downtownish area of one of like the seven downtowns of Istanbul. It's a city of 16 million people. It's a lot of people. And I could get around better. I could say like Ekmek still, but I could say like a lot of other words. So I could take them very easily to Taksim Square. And it's this beautiful, huge square. And there's this amazing park in Taksim Square called Gezi Park. And it's beautiful. It has these trees that were planted by the original founder of Turkey, Ataturk. It's one of the last remaining large green spaces in the entire city. And it's gorgeous. There's a huge fountain in the middle, all these benches to sit at. We sat there doing crossword puzzles in this crazy book Lotus brought. And it was a really perfect way to end this trip to Istanbul. So I have two weeks left. And, you know, I thought, what could go wrong for these last two weeks? Literally two days later, the park was on fire. Um, and the reason the park was on fire, because the uh, prime minister of Turkey, uh, Atatur, uh, Taip, Recep Tayyip uh, Erdogan, decided he wanted to build a barracks on the park and tear down all the trees. There was these huge protests in the square. If anyone's familiar with these Gezi Park protests, they're all over the news. People camped out in the park, and the police like snuck in and lit the tents on fire, and everyone was like really stressed out. It wasn't great. You know, last two weeks in Turkey... So I wake up the day after the protests to, you know, like a conservative estimate of six emails and five Facebook messages from my mother saying, I swear to God, I know these protests are something you would get involved in. <laughs> Since you've been gone, I've watched Midnight Express like five times. And if you end up in a Turkish prison before you leave, <laughs> I will disown you. This is going to be bad for you. So, you know, I think about, you know, I'm grabbing, like, a ton of baklava and tea with my uh, friends who are also Erasmus students, exchange students in Turkey. We all decide, you know, these protests really aren't for us. This is not, like, the thing. This is for the Turks who are living there. We want to be, like, protest tourists. And there's, you know, and also my mother will disown me. So... I decided not to go to the protests. And it was a good decision overall because the protests got pretty crazy. Like a kid died of being hit in the head with a tear gas canister. And the police had these huge vehicles called Tomas. It's like, imagine a giant armored tank with a water gun. And the police were dumping pepper spray into the water tanks. So they'd shoot you in the face and you'd be knocked backwards and also blinded, you know, because of pepper spray in the water. It was a not bad, good situation at all. Um, but, you know, I decided... I love this city. I love this country. I want to help somehow. So I'm going to go when it's safe. And after a few days of protests, the people of Istanbul had kind of taken control of Gezi Park and the square at this point. Um, so I decided to go with a few other students to go clean up. Because the thing is, there were literally thousands of tear gas canisters just littering the ground in Taksim Square. And there were broken windows and broken ATMs, and it was just a mess. And, you know, living there for a year, I felt some ownership of the city. So I wanted to go try to help clean it up. 
So I go with some friends, and we're there, and it's a great atmosphere. Toxim Square, if you haven't been, is on kind of like a hill. And to get to the hill are these really steep roads, and people had built, like, seriously, like Les Miserables-style barricades on all the roads going up. Like, literally, like, we're talking like seven-foot-high chairs and doors and couches all stacked together to block these tomas from going up. So when you got to the square, it was like a party. It was great. There was all these people, like, dancing and singing, and it was like a really fun atmosphere. And everyone's cleaning up with these trash bags cleaning up these canisters, and the atmosphere was awesome, and everything went well, uh, until all of a sudden, as we're picking up these tear gas canisters, we hear, and I've never heard this sound before, like this, loudly, and we hear, and then all of a sudden, kind of everyone looks up simultaneously, and there's three police helicopters in the air, and all of a sudden, these things start raining down from the police helicopters, and it's tons of tear gas canisters just littering the square. Anyone been tear gassed before? It's not super great. It's like really like bad. It's not good. Um, so this tear gas immediately just fills the square, and everything goes white, and your eyes start swelling and crying. And the weirdest part about it is you get like really spitty, like just saliva starts pouring out of your mouth. So we are just like, <laughs> so we all start sprinting down this hill about a mile down to this other neighborhood called Besiktash, and we're going in. And all these shop owners are like, "Come on, come on!" I'm just screaming like, "Ekmek, ekmek!" Because I'm like in panic mode. I'm like reverting back to like the old version of Turkish I didn't really know at the time. And it's like filled with spit ekmek, so it's really hard to understand. But ev- eventually, we run into this shop, and the shop owner is there, and he has a plate of lemons. And it's just the four of us. And apparently, like lemons help neutralize the gas. I haven't had this scientifically confirmed, but we just poured lemon juice in our eyes. And like it like sort of helped, I guess. It wasn't worse, you know, at a bare minimum. So when we get in the shop, like the shop owner decides just close the garage door. We're pouring lemon juice in our eyes on the ground and they come to us really quickly in Turkish and like, you ever like learn another language and then get tear gas and pour lemon juice in your eyes? No one. Okay, it's really hard to understand the foreign language. So we're just kind of lying there for a few hours. And we end up, uh, after about two hours, we're able to see fully again and look out the windows. And we see this police running through the square, stopping people and arresting people. And we end up staying there for about four hours. Uh, and once the tear gas got out of our eyes, uh, then we waited for lemon juice to get out of our eyes. And once the lemon juice got out of our eyes, everything was fine. And we ended up leaving. Uh, we didn't go back to Toxium Square. I didn't get thrown in a Turkish prison, Midnight Express style. And I came back here to tell the tale. Thank you very much. Thanks, Sammy. Kind of puts into perspective that time you had to sit on the tarmac for 30 minutes, doesn't it? Wasn't Sammy's story amazing? He just, he just knows exactly like what points to hit in his story and how to hit them, and I very much enjoy that. Yeah, no problem. Uh, Andrew Ulbrich. Is it Ulbrich? All right, please put your hands together for Andrew! Hey, everyone. Um, so I'm going to break the trend a little bit. This story didn't actually happen to me. Um, so in the 1960s, right, in the early 1960s, my uh, grandma and grandpa, they bought a new car. You know, it had all of the bells and whistles, you know, everything that you could want. Um, you know, no power steering or seatbelts, but who needs those, you know? 
Um, so they're really careful with this car, you know. Um, you know, they take all the precautions, you know, they always lock it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so my grandma one day takes my dad and uncle to the zoo. So because she's really careful with it, you know, she parks it in the back of the parking lot. And they have a good day at the zoo. Um, but when they get back to the car, you know, she notices there's something wrong. There's this huge dent in the top of the hood. And she's like, what happened? Like, how did this happen? You know, like it, it hadn't been hailing, you know, nothing. Um, but she notices there's a note on the car, and it's from the head zookeeper. And he's like, you know, we're really sorry this happened. You know, we'll pay for the damages. But, you know, one of our elephants sat on your car. <laughs> yeah. Um, and she's like, what? An elephant sat on my car? Like, what? So apparently what had happened, the note explained, was that they were getting some new elephants to the zoo. They were unloading the elephants. And one of them apparently was a little sleepy from the journey and decided to take a load off on the nearest seat. Yeah. So, you know, she's like, you know, this is terrible, but, you know, they're going to pay for it. No harm, no foul. So they start, you know, they start driving home. And there's this big, huge pileup on the highway, you know, 20-car wreck, you know, cars strewn all over the place. And they're, you know, they're shuttling the cars um, around the wreck in, uh, like, one lane on the shoulder, right? And, you know, she gets past the wreck, and she sees these lights go on behind her. Right, and this cop is pulling her over, and she's like, "What now? You know, I'm not speeding or anything. What's going on?" So, she, you know, she pulls over, and this cop comes up, and he's like, "Ma'am, you you can't leave here. You know, you've been in an accident. You have to fill out some paperwork." And she's like, "Oh no 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 no! I, I wasn't in an accident. You know, an elephant sat on my car." And he's like, "Yeah, uh huh, okay." And she's like, "No." This really happened. He's like, you know, listen, ma'am, you know, I'm being very reasonable, but if you keep insisting, I'm going to have to take you in. She's like, no, 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 I hit the elephant. And he's like, okay, I'm taking down to the station. So he drags her down to the station, and, you know, this is the days before cell phones, and she's, you know, she's calling the zoo, she's calling the zoo, she's calling the zoo, no one's picking up. And, you know, the police are getting, you know, increasingly fed up with her. Um, But eventually, you know, the zookeeper kept uh, picked up, vouched for her, paid for the car, and was not arrested. (laughs) That is the story of uh, how going to the zoo can go slightly wrong. Thank you. Is it Alicia or... Alicia Wright, please put your hands together for Alicia. Okay. So hopefully this is not going to be my thing to go wrong, but, you know, we're going to go with it. So as most situations uh, where you're following someone that you love and it ends poorly and you still decide, like, okay, we had this dream and I'm going to just go for it. So I find myself in Ladakh, India. And at this point, I've been working in Delhi. Um, I quit my job, which was actually just volunteering, so I was making nothing anyways. Uh, But I was doing good work, I should say that. Um, And I go up to Ladakh. And in Ladakh, it's gorgeous. It's a lot like... uh, 
I guess the closest thing is like New Mexico or so, but it's high desert, a little cold here and there. Um, but all you really do is you go up and you trek around all these mountains. And so I have gone on this one trip, met these awesome people, uh, these two Brits and the guide. And I'm deciding, okay, I've got, I've gone for two weeks. And I have maybe six days left, I think. And I have no idea what I'm going to do. Uh, but the way you usually do it is you go into this shop and you say, I'm going to go on a trip. Who else wants to come? And you pay a guide and blah, blah. Uh, I still, I feel like I can do a trip by myself. Like, I don't need a guide. I don't need to go pay people. I have the tips from that guy who broke up with me and who, you know, I'm kind of going on this trip with, but not really. So I'm like, okay, I've got this. Like, I'm just going to follow the tips he gave me. Like, take the bus to where he said to get off and just go out into the Himalayas because that's a good idea. Uh, Luckily, the guide from the trip before comes to my hotel at midnight and says, hey, I really want to do this trip. So you want to come with me? I know you wanted to go for about four days. So this is going to be great. I said, okay. For some reason, I start questioning his abilities a lot more than my own uh, because, you know, that's smart. And I said, do you have a map? And he's, yeah, I've got a map. We're we're good. So at, I think, 4 or 5 a.m., we are headed on the bus to I don't know where exactly. But I've decided I'm going on this trip, and I don't care what happens. Uh, you know, we have our packs, and the first trip had gone okay. Uh, I, I like to read, so I had chosen a book to pack along with me, and that was Middle March. Because when you're trekking, Middle March is the best book to bring. I had actually ripped it in half for that part because I was like, this might be a little much for my pack. And it was. It was. It was definitely too much. So on this four-day, I'm like, no, okay, no middle March. I know how, many, how much clothes to bring. That's none, just what's on me. Uh, and I, I just have this backpack of nothing. And he supposedly has a map. So we get started. And when you're on these treks, we decided to go the, like, homestay route. So... You are supposed to trek for about three or four hours, and then you end up in this little village, and it's really awesome. You stay uh, with a family, and they cook dinner for you, and you kind of stay on their floor, and I don't know. It's a wonderful experience. I was, it was just awesome. People were so inviting, um, and the first two days went great. We end up in these little villages, and we're seeing these monasteries, um, and then by about the third day, we get to this point and there's a for- of course, there's a fork in the road. And one looks really uh, well-worn, and the other doesn't. And at this point, the guide, who has the map, says, I think we should go on the less worn trail. And I say, absolutely not. Like, I can tell that that one up the mountain is probably the trail we're supposed to go because the last mountain sucked. And I hated climbing up it, but we're doing it because I know this is the way we all, all these trekkers, we all just want to like hurt ourselves. So we're going up the mountain. Okay, great. So we find the next village. The next day, we're trekking and we've hit about hour five. We haven't seen anybody. We have passed one semi camp where there was clearly some horses there, there was a fire, and that was two hours ago. So we're now on hour seven. And again, we're, 
I still haven't seen this map that he supposedly had. Uh, I did see a set of written directions uh, that was not a map. It was just like, oh, go here and go there. Maybe turn right here. What? Uh, So we get to this cliff, and I'm mad. And when I get mad, I'm from Tennessee. I get a southern accent. And the southern is coming out. And I'm not nice when I'm mad. So, like, there's just two of us. And I haven't known this guy very long. Uh, And I'm not nice anymore. And so I'm sitting on this cliff, and I was like, I've had enough. We're going to die in the Himalayas. And he says, okay, all right. You're freaking out a little bit. So sit sit down here with both of our packs alone, and I'm going to run ahead. And I'm going to find the next village. Because it must be. Must be ahead. So I say... (laughs) What other option do I have at this point? So I sit down, sitting with the packs, and he runs off, and I see him in the distance running, and then I don't see him anymore. And I'm pretty sure it must have been, like, four hours later, but it was really, like, ten minutes. And I'm bawling, and it's pouring rain now. I'm like, okay, like, I'm going to die in the Himalayas. And, like, now since that time, I've seen all the, like, Everest movies, and it's horrible. But in that moment, I hadn't. But it was, it felt pretty bad. Uh, so I'm just sitting there and I think, okay, I have no cell phone. I have no map. We don't have food because we did the homestay way. So, like, we didn't pack food. We had a little bit of water. I'm, I'm going to die. And I'm just going to sit in the Himalayas and, like, maybe someday someone's going to find me there. <laughs> but then I say, okay, I've got this. I have got this. I can survive. And Rohit is not going to just leave me out here. So I pick up our packs, and I start going. And I just walk where I saw him go, and I'm screaming at the top of my lungs in this great southern accent. Uh, I'm screaming his name. And suddenly, in the distance, I see him, and he comes back. And he's like, I heard you screaming. I thought someone was going to kill you. Like, I hurried back to you. I found the village. I was like, okay, great. We ended up not talking for, like, the rest of the trek. But I have actually, since this was uh, in 2011, and we've stayed really great friends. I saw him last summer. We survived. I'm here. Uh, But what could go wrong? Don't go without a map. Seriously. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, our next storyteller one time made me take a bite out of a bar of soap because my sister said, screw you. Please give it up for my dad, David Rostad. Real quick, <clears throat> real quick, I'm going to make an addendum to what I just said about him. He gave me a choice. He said... You can either have the most savage beating you've ever had in your life, or you can take a bite out of this bar of soap. I chose the soap, and I'm still brushing my teeth over it. Thanks. Thank you, Adam. I grew up in an era when uh, the whole concept of uh, looking at something that could potentially go wrong never really crossed your mind. And so when we thought about what could go wrong with something, it wasn't a part of who we were. And so... My friends and I had BB gun wars, and we would go out into abandoned uh, tobacco sheds and barns, and and we would shoot each other with BB guns. 
Or when I was a younger kid and I was trying to uh, learn how to swim, I jumped off a diving board into 10 feet of water, not knowing how to swim, but I was holding a, a rubber ball in my hands and my arms. And so when I jumped into the water, guess what the water did to the ball? It just went flying away. And I dog paddled to the edge of the, of the pool and... There was a, a nice teenage girl who had very flattering words for me, and she simply said, if you don't know how to swim, don't go off the diving board. I was not, not happy. A couple of the things that are part of, uh, a part of my experiences. One is, uh, I was at my uncle's farm. Now, my uncle is named Sylvester. But from the time he was a little baby, two years old, his nickname was Fat. And so throughout my entire life, he was my Uncle Fat. And oftentimes when we would, when I would introduce him to somebody, I would say, hey, this is my Uncle Fat. And they'd be like, what? You're, you're, you're being rude. You're being offensive to him. And I said, no, no, it's really my Uncle Fat. It's not a problem. And he had this little farm up by Rio and, uh, you know, Back then, farms were maybe 100 acres, and you had chickens, you had cows, you had pigs, you had everything else. And my two cousins, one by the name of Mike, and the other by the name of Donnie, and myself. Well, Donnie's nickname was Pooter. I know, really. He's still, his nickname, he's 58 years old, and his nickname is still Pooter. Can you believe it? If you said to any of my cousins, how's Pooter, they would absolutely all know who Pooter was. And he got it because exactly what you're thinking. <laughs> exactly what you're thinking. So we, uh, we're at the farm, and I, you know, these two guys are kind of, kind of radical kind of kids. You know, we're about 10 years old, and I'm hanging out uh, with uh, another cousin. And my cousin Mike and my cousin Pooter are up in the hayloft above the pig shed. Now, don't ask me why they put a hayloft above a pig shed, but there they are up in the hayloft above the pig shed. And, and what could go wrong in a hayloft playing with matches? I mean, absolutely nothing could potentially go wrong in a hayloft playing with matches. And so they're playing with matches, and they're lighting matches, and they're building little fires and everything else. And all of a sudden, it gets a little bit bigger than they have ever anticipated it would ever possibly get. And I look out with my other cousin, and we're like, is that shed on fire and the whole roof is just blazing and so we are trying to figure out what the heck has gone on in this regard and and there they are my two other cousins mike and pooter uh over by the house just kind of cowering because my uncle fat wasn't particularly a nice guy and there they were cowering over there and the shed is just in blazes and the pigs are all trapped in the shed. Now, I have an older cousin by the name of Steve. Steve and I are good buddies to this day. And, uh, and, uh, and, and the pigs are all on fire. I mean, literally, they're on fire. You, ever, you know how bacon sizzles? Man. 
It just sizzles. And those pigs are on fire. And the only thing they can do is slam open the gate. And my cousin Steve comes out with his, with his rifle. And he just starts picking them off while they're on fire. What could go wrong lighting matches in a hayloft above a pig shed? That's what could go wrong. Hannah Watts, where are you at? Give it up for Hannah. Hi. Way sooner than I thought, because my friend Andrew signed up when I got here, and like he was like 11, so I thought there was more. Anyway. Um, so any parents in the audience here? So you know how it goes. Um, personally, not a parent. I do have them, though, so I feel like I kind of understand what it's like. Um, pretty normal. So um, I was 15 uh, in ninth grade, and my mom had this big business trip that she had to go on to Zurich, Switzerland. And so she naturally called the parents of my best friend, Trisha, uh, you know, to see if they would be willing to maybe host me for a little while, because Trisha lived really close to school, we could take the bus together, it would make sense. And it turns out that Trisha's parents had had this whole thing planned where they wanted to go on this RV trip across America, uh, see the country, you know, finally, like, get out there, get out in the wild. And so they talked a while, they went back and forth, and they decided that the best situation that could happen would be Trisha and I just stay together and take care of each other while my mom went to Zurich and Trisha's parents went, you know, cross-country on the Great American Road Trip. And, uh... I guess, like, in terms of what could go wrong, things escalated really quickly. Um... So the first day, we were super excited. We were like, oh, this is going to be such a great adventure. It's going to be the best, like, you know, time of our life. Um, I was raised Quaker. Like, I didn't have, like, TV or, like, the Internet. But, like, you know, I'd seen some things. I knew what, like, went on. And uh, the first day, we rode our bikes through the house. It was crazy. (laughs) And then, like, after that, I guess we, you know, we went to school. We did our homework. It was kind of lame. And then, I guess it was, like, Friday night. And there was nothing to do. We were like, what are we going to do now? We had this like entire house. We had five weeks, by the way, that they left us. <laughs> uh, so we decided we lived you know, pretty close to downtown, downtown Nashville. So not like a major U.S. city, but like a decent-sized city. And we took the bus downtown. It was, that was an adventure in and of itself. And then we were walking down by the river, and uh, we ran into this guy. We ran into this friendly rat peddler. I'm sure you've all run into them before. Uh, you know, they, they sell rats down by the river. It's, uh, and he, you know, he had a cardboard box. He was reputable, okay? Like, he had multiple rats in a box. Like, as if, like, you know, somebody is going to just have, like, one or two rats. Like, he had, like, a bunch of rats in a box. And... <laughs> You know, we're 15. We know the ways of the world. We've ridden our bikes to the house at least once. And 
we pick up, you know, so uh, we meet this guy. He's the rat peddler. And uh, he says, so we want to just buy one rat because we're like, this will be fun for the next couple of weeks. And then we can trade him back and forth like in elementary school. Um, but he was like, they get really lonely, which is fair. I mean, have you ever seen a lonely rat? Jesus Christ. So he was like, you got to get two of them. And so, you know, he was like, don't worry. I'll get you two of the same gender rats. It'll be good. And so he gives us, you know, two female rats. Good stuff. We get him back to Trisha's parents' place, which no adults, again, for a long time. And nobody had told us. Again, like, I didn't, like, necessarily grow up with the internet, like, in my house or anything. So, like, give me a little bit of slack. Uh, they breed really quickly, and it was not the same gender rats. And we figured this out. Like, you know, we're not, like, we're not total idiots. We see this one rat getting pregnant. And so we dyed, you know, we dyed the male rat pink so we could tell them apart. And then, hey, like, you know, our parents had left us with, like, a couple of hundred bucks, and we bought another rat tank, and we separated them. Like, again, responsibly want to remind you and uh the thing that we the one thing that we didn't account for was that like rats breed really quickly and so like just because their eyes are like closed still and they don't have fur yet like they can still breed like with their parents i know sorry that was weird um which they did and so we ended up we're two 15 year old girls with um it, turns out about like 45 rats (laughs) and our initial response was like horror and like just confusion and then like i like it got to the point where like we like didn't have because we thought like just separating the parents gender wise would be like good enough you know like oh we separated the mom and the dad we didn't realize that like they could breed again in like like four days um I know, fun fact, by the way, for all those parents out there that are thinking about leaving your kids at home for five weeks. Um, and so we, like, ran out of rat tank space, and we, like, we even got a third tank. But it was, like, you know, they're, like, they're, their eyes are closed. You're trying to, like, separate them by gender and, like, age. And, like, it's a lot for a couple of 15-year-old girls. So we, like, started taking some of them with us, like, the smallest ones. And... Kind of by accident, we realized that, like, rats can be used as currency. Um, like, they're adorable pets. They're super smart. Like, they can, you know, they can do a whole lot of things. And especially when they're that little, they're really cute. People don't realize, like, how angry and, like, violent they can be. So, you know, we, like, we found, like, a bit of a niche in the market, if you will, at a, you know, Hillsborough High School in Nashville, Tennessee. And... Uh, they, so we were like trading them with our friends for various goods and services and you know like movie tickets at the local theater like a couple of different things and we had a rat deal set up one day uh, and it was, it was a relatively like run the mill transaction just like like two rats like I think for like you know like a skateboard or something normal that kids buy with like each other and <laughs> and I was in my Spanish class. I got a little distracted. Uh, my teacher was super pregnant. Like, we're talking fixing to pop. By the way, like, people should definitely get leave 
way sooner. She was absolutely like eight and a half months pregnant. Very sensitive. And there have been rumors going around for a while with this teacher about like this relationship she may or may not have had with like a student in my class. And like no one really took it seriously. Kids gossip. Um, anyway, I, I set my bag down and one of these little, little baby critters uh, had decided to open its eyes for the first time. And he, like, made its way over to her foot. And she lost her shit. Like, freaked out. Like, just, like, like quite honestly, vomited everywhere. And at the time, like, and, like, said the name of the student that she was, like, purportedly, you know, involved with. And, uh, anyway, things got out of hand. So, that's it. Uh, careful. All right, that is it for this episode of Madison Story Slam. Hope you enjoyed those what-could-go-wrong stories. Uh, Like I said at the beginning of the podcast, I have several episodes that I'm working on that uh, I have been neglecting. And again, I apologize for that. Uh, But they will be getting out over the next week and a half, two weeks. Uh, But speaking of Story Slams, our next one is this Saturday, April 15th. The theme is Here Goes Nothing. And then in May, on May 20th, that's our final Story Slam of the season. The theme for that night is Death, Sex, and Money. Uh, So come on out to those events and have a good time. Big thanks to Ale Asylum for sponsoring Story Slam, as always. And hey, hope to see you next time.